Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hi, I'm Rena Nainen, and this is Ask Lisa, the Psychology of Parenting podcast. It's a podcast to help parents better understand their kids. Dr. Lisa Demore, a psychologist with three decades of experience and the author of three New York Times best-selling parenting books, takes your questions. Both of us are moms ourselves, and we're eager to hear from you. So send us your questions to asklisa at drlisademore.com. And you can join our community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The handle is Ask Lisa Podcast. And also subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel, Ask Lisa Podcast. Episode 154 with special guest and author, Dr. Aliza Pressman, and her new book, The Five Principles of Parenting. Ah, uh, you know, it's this part of the year in January where this Florida girl struggles with winter. Then don't come to Cleveland, <laughs> so I would say. We actually have beautiful weather most of the year, but we are in the six ugly weeks. Uh, well, I so, feel it. Don't come I, here. I feel it, Lisa, but I'm so excited about this guest who six months ago, you called me and you're like, Rena, we have got to do this book in January. It's a wonderful book and a brilliant writer. So I am so excited to have her. I want to introduce Aliza Pressman. She's a developmental psychologist with nearly two decades of experience working with families and healthcare providers. She's also co-founding director of the Mount Sinai Parenting Center. Aliza is also host of the hit podcast, Raising Good Humans. And she also holds a teaching certificate in mindfulness and meditation. Ooh, Lisa, we're going to have to have her back on to talk about that I too. Know. I know. And that's with the, the Greater Good Science Center at the University of California, Berkeley. Aliza is also the mother of two teenagers, so she's living it and knows it. And she's the author of a brand new book out this month that you're going to want to get. It's called The Five Principles of Parenting. Aliza, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, and we're thrilled to have you on your actual publication day. I've got your baby right here. So Yay. excited to talk with you about it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all of your help and input. Well, it's an honor to support work like yours. I love, see, I was talking about how I dread winter, but 
books sustain me through winter. And this was like the guide of parenting, I sort of felt like. Tell me a little bit. It's a Five Principles of Parenting is the title. Why did you want to do this book? And what do you hope parents get out of it? Well, I wanted to do the book because, well, I didn't even want to do a book because I thought I don't want to add to, I don't want to add to anybody's plate. But I also wanted to turn down the volume a little bit on so much we're just inundated with so much information, particularly when we first have our kids. Um, but we're just inundated and some of it's useful and some of it is neutral and some of it's downright harmful. So I just wanted to be there for parents who were like, I know that it's not, we, we need to know something. It's not like the chaos of just like, go with your instincts. That That just doesn't seem fair for parents. But I did think it's too much. And how can we clear away the noise and just get down to what really matters? So what do you think, Aliza, are the basics that parents need to do, to know to get parenting right? <laughs> um, so one thing, I mean, I know that that's just a way of saying it, but of course there's no way to get it right. Um, but I do think it'd be great if parents could not focus so much on the procedural stuff that makes us so stressed out and really think about the bigger picture. So like how you're feeding, how you're teaching your child how to sleep, what you're, you know, exactly the words you're using when they come home and tell you about something bad that happened at school. Like sometimes we get so fixated that we forget that the bigger picture view is that we need to have a close connected really I mean I'm saying this to both of you know this very well um but we need to have a close connected relationship and within that relationship we need to in order to have any good relationship right you have to reflect on the experiences that you've you've had in the past how you were raised how your partner if you have a co-parent was raised what that might mean. And then we have to figure out how to get our own act together in a way, like our own emotional act together. Um, and that's what I think of as regulation so that we can support our kids. And I do think we need the guardrails, the boundaries, the limits, and the idea that we can do that and have repairs when we get it wrong. I think you're covered. So you said it is sort of a throwaway line, but I want to come back to what you said of like, you can't get it right. I, I actually think that is such a critical message because I think so often in the world of parenting guidance, maybe it's not said directly, but indirectly, there's sort of like, if you do this ninja move and yes. that ninja move, then magic, parenting is going to be easy and you're going to enjoy your kids all day. And of course- there's no ninja move that makes parenting easy. It makes your kids enjoyable right. all day. No, that's, so, that's so true. It's so true. And so I love that you're like, enough with that, setting that to the side. And you do offer these five principles of parenting, which you just, you know, you know, gestured at, but I want to name them. Relationship, reflection, regulation, rules, and repair. And so how did you come to these? What made these rise to the top to you? Um, and how are they useful to families? Okay. Well, first, just to address what you said about not getting it right, I, I think 
I did throw that away. And the truth is that if we don't believe, because I think if you're listening to this podcast, if you're reading our work, if you're thinking about parenting, you are more likely to be a mom and you are more, not everybody, but more likely to be a mom and you are more likely to be a perfectionist. <laughs> and <laughs> so we and i and i don't want to throw away the natural like very developmentally appropriate desire to get it right like of course these are the most important human beings in our life and we want to get it right but i think the way into really believing that we can't get it perfectly right is to know that it would be a disservice to our kids it would be a disservice to our kids to grow up with the burden of thinking my parents got this so right. They never screwed up. I have to get it right. And then you sit with that heaviness. And just in general, like getting out into the world and finding out that either it was all a sham, right? Because you were in this bubble of thinking that everything that your parents did was perfect and that that was an attainable goal, or that you really still believe it. And then you just are so hard on yourself for not being good enough. So I actually think it's a service to blow it with your kids <laughs> at least 25% of the time. That is not scientific, that specific number. <laughs> I'm doing a very great service to my children. I just want you to be clear <laughs> based yeah, on yeah. those numbers. <laughs> That's what I – the other day my kids were like, you know, you could – be a little less self-compassionate <laughs> when you blow it. <laughs> they feel like I've really been clinging to that. <laughs> okay, that is hilarious. I love that. But you know, that's one of the things, Lisa, I know you taught me was you've got to say when you screw up, which I grew up in a household where the parent is God, like the equivalent of, and there's no screw-ups. And understanding that sometimes even admitting your mistakes can be good for them to see. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, actually, I'm having like a, a flashbacky moment I'm sitting in my practice office where we I do this recording, and years and years ago, I cared for this really fun family with a really spicy adolescent girl, and they were all in here together, and they, you know, were doing all the bumps of growing up, and she was often in trouble and deservedly so, but it was so funny. I remember watching them together, and the parents, um, the girl made a a really excellent kind of challenge to something that they were doing. And the the dad goes, good point, good point. And I was like, that's beautiful. And I actually now do that in my own house. Like when I get called on the carpet, like basically on the hour I get called on the yeah. carpet, if my kid's right, I'll be like, you know what? Good point. And it's such a nice way to rest for a second and hold that idea that you can be disagreeing with me and I can be in agreement with that. And it doesn't have to get heated. Yeah. And when we do get heated, it mostly is, I, I would imagine it's the lack of reflection. Like we don't want to go, you know what? The reason why that pisses me off so much is because it's totally right. <laughs> and it's my worst fear, right? Like it's like yeah. you're criticizing the thing about me I don't want to be. And here mm -hmm. I'm doing it. And now you're calling me out on it. So I'm doubling down on my rightness. But actually, it's probably just because it's so like, oh, that is not what I wanted to feel. That is not how I wanted to do this. You know, you have this line in, in the book that, that was really a shocker to me. And you say that the tantrums of childhood mirror the tantrums of adolescence. 
I read that over and over again. Tell me more about this. Well, I just think we try to figure out like each, and I'm a developmental psychologist. Like I look at change over time. I care about exactly what's going on developmentally. But I think when we get so far into it that we think like, okay, I just have to get through these tantruming, dysregulated states of toddlerhood. And then, you know, we're going to be good. And it's really, it's all about dysregulation and coming back to a place of feeling like, okay, there is no emergency going on. I don't need to sound the alarm bells. And that is no different when you, you know, didn't get to go to the party that you wanted to go to, or you didn't get the blue cup and you really were counting on getting the blue cup and your, you know, your dad gave you the red cup. Both of those things ignite an emergency reaction. Like we just, we go into that same state of fight, flight, or freeze. And, you know, it's the same. And by the way, it's the same with adults. We have our own tantrums. We just, how they look, I mean, should be a bit different. <laughs> should. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ideally. You're, you're, you're sort of so um, easily spinning off ideas that are so big and so important here, right? I mean, I really, well, I mean, just even to go back for a minute to what you said about like, if what a kid says really stings, there's a decent chance they actually landed on a tender spot for you, right? Or well, like if, how you, said you know, that. yeah, I, don't, I, I think I mixed metaphors, but we'll figure it out. But, <laughs> um, or what you're saying about at any age, toddler, teenager, adult, something can feel like an emergency that isn't an emergency, right? And so just the ways that, you know, you've got these simple words, repair, regulation, that, um, spin out into these giant ideas and give us so much room to work from a a, more of a distance. I think so much of parenting guidance is so up close that you pull the camera back in a way that um, can only be helpful in helping families feel calmer. Yeah. I want, I want that camera back. I, I want us to pull that camera back because when we get stuck, that's when, first of all, we berate ourselves because we're like, I got that micro moment off and now I'm spending time criticizing myself. And when we criticize ourselves for those micro moments, we are again, just sort of making it known that we are expected to be really rigid in making sure that each moment is so exactly, you know, every moment counts and all of that. And I'm not saying those beautiful moments that you do have don't matter. It's just that we just want them to happen more often than not, but just know that that's about, that's the best we're getting. Yeah. Okay. So then big question, way back, camera way, way back. Your podcast is called Raising Good Humans. Mm. What, what makes good humans? What really matters? Like give us a couple things. Okay. So of course I say raising good humans, but my, and so what is a good human? I think we each know exactly what that means in our heads, but it's different for each of us. And I bet if we both, you know, if all three of us chose three to five values that we thought, you know what, if my kid ends up with these values, I've got myself a good human, they will not be the same. We may have probably more aligned values um, than usual, but if if you ask anybody, I never want anyone to think I know what a good human is. 
and there's this specific formula. I just know that you know what a good human is and you're raising your good human. So for me, that's more what it's about is having an intention and recognizing that we all come at this from a different place. We all come at this with different values and we all come at this with a different history. And when we think about that, what does it mean for us to raise a good human? And I know, you know, I never say what my my idea of a good human is because I feel like that might like it it taints the water or something. Like mm-hmm. somehow those those ideas will be more right. But I really believe, absent of somebody saying, I hope my child grows up to be selfish and cruel <laughs> and harmful. And, you know, I think there's a pretty wide range. But what I love about the idea of good is that we all know what this means. We just do. There's like an old Stephen Sondheim quote from Into the Woods. I'm such a theater geek. But um, And Little Red Riding Hood is learning that nice is different than good. Mm-hmm. And I just, that's where, that is where I come at this. The idea that we're not for me, we're talking about like deep goodness. We're not talking about like a polite kid or a kid who's getting yeah. it right all the time or, you know, but for someone else, it may very well be that one of the core values for them is being really polite and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Rena, as Elise is talking, I'm trying to think of what are the like three or four words I would say. Were you thinking that too? What I would want my kids to be. Yes. I, I love, I love that. Like what are the three, what would you say, Lisa? Well, this is just thinking about it just now. So kind, actually. Mm-hmm. So not mm-hmm. nice, but kind. Um, useful, for sure. Useful's on my list. And then I started to think about words like aware and honest. But um, I'd have to. I'd really want to think it through some more. But it's, mm-hmm. I love what you're saying, Elisa. Like, it's actually quite an, a good exercise. I can almost picture it in a family. Like actually thinking through, like, you know, what are the this sounds such a strange way to say it. What are the target outcomes here in terms yeah. of well, this, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, what are the target outcomes? It's really just your family mission statement. Yeah, I would say compassionate, kind. Like though, I just in a world that feels it's lost all compassion in in some moments over the past six months. I just how do I instill more compassion and kindness? Because then I'll take whatever the third is as a wild card that anybody wants to give me. But those two, I feel the world is on short supply of these days. Agreed. And I and I, I think about this when you find whatever those core values are, the target outcomes, whatever that is. When you have older kids, you can say to them, "What do you think I value as a good human? And what do you think this mm-hmm. family values?" And it's so interesting because if your kids have something completely different than what you thought, that is great information. You know, like, okay, well, if I value compassion and kindness and a wild card, but compassion and kindness didn't show up as what they think is like top, top. Okay. So what are we doing here? Let's, let's figure that out. And it's not a criticism. It's just like figure out if, is it really compassion, kindness, and wild card, or did they tap into something that's so important to you, but you just didn't know it or didn't even want to admit it. But once we can see like, you know what, as it turns out, I do care about whatever it is. And this is how we want to cultivate that in this household. I think it can be really illuminating. And then if your kids, when your kids are younger, it's more like it gives them the North star that will eventually be internalized. 
I love that. We're going to pause, Elisa, take a quick break. But on the other side of this break, I want to ask you about something you write about in your book, The Martyr Mom. We'll be right back. You're listening to Ask Lisa, The Psychology of Parenting. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but instead of being a dryer sheet, they're in fact an ultra-concentrated liquidless laundry detergent. It's really the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and to your skin. Personally, I get a huge kick out of using Earth Breeze. I love the fact that it takes up less space, is better for the environment, and yet it leaves my clothes smelling so good and it gets them so clean. Here's the bottom line. Making a positive impact in the world doesn't have to come at a cost to you. My clothes are clean, they smell great, and I feel like I actually did something good, not just for my laundry, but also for the earth. Right now, my listeners can receive 40% off EarthBreeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash asklisa. That's earthbreeze.com slash asklisa to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash asklisa. I'm all for healthy habits, but I don't trust quick fixes. This is why I love Daily Harvest. They take all of the work out of eating well, and all I have to do is enjoy. Daily Harvest makes it so easy for me to eat in the nutritious and delicious ways that I like. They take the planning, the prep, the cleanup out of cooking, and they deliver meals that are packed with vegetables and fruits straight to my door. The other thing I love about them is that it's not the same old boring meals. I love their dragon fruit and lime smoothie. I also love their butternut squash and rosemary soup. They also have this wonderful herbed squash and asparagus risotto. Create healthy habits that last with Daily Harvest. For a limited time only, go to dailyharvest.com slash asklisa to get $30 off your first box plus free shipping. That's dailyharvest.com slash asklisa for $30 off your first box and free shipping. dailyharvest.com slash asklisa. I was recently watching an interview of the wife of a world leader, and in the middle of the interview, she reaches over to pull her bra strap up, and I thought, boy, this is something all women everywhere are struggling with. This is why I absolutely love Honey Love. I have the crossover bra, which is just so functional, but it feels so good on. I feel like I've got the support without feeling like I've got this heavy-duty bra on. I've been through all the bras. The elastic wears out, the underwire pinches into your skin, you have to hand wash some, you can only wash it in this type of detergent, and I just wanted something that takes out all the fuss and will support me day in and day out. Honey Love's not just supporting women, it's empowering women. So treat yourself to the best bra on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash askalisa. You can use our exclusive link to get 20% off. That's honeylove.com slash askalisa to find your perfect fit. And after you purchase, they're going to ask you where you heard about them. We hope you support the show and tell them Askalisa sent you. Honeys, you deserve this. Free the pain and discomfort and keep the support with Honey Love. Welcome back to Ask Elisa, The Psychology of Parenting. We are here with Dr. Elisa Pressman, who's got this new book out, The Five Principles of Parenting. You had mentioned deep goodness about instilling sort of that sense of what you want in your child, but you also talk about this concept of the martyr mom. What is it, and why do we need to be rid of this concept? Don't you feel like, as mothers, there's just this that how many times I'm sure I'm not the only one where you show up and do something. Maybe you baked something. Maybe you showed up to a 
an activity that no one else showed up to. Maybe you offer to host something and you're told like, you're the best mom. Like, oh my God, you're a better mom than I am. Or uh, you're so amazing as a mom. And it's always like, because you've done this service that, you know, or you've been at every practice or something that feels like, come on. (laughs) Like, (laughs) why is that the measure of good mothering? Like, what is it about that kind of thing versus your your relationship with your child and the connection that you have and the way you respond in moments and the laughing, you know, all of the stuff that feels like you're really, it's about you and your kid. The martyr mom feels much more about like how we are viewed, like how the world mm-hmm. says we're good mothers. And, and I think that bothers me because I don't know. I've said many times, and I'm joking, but I'm kind of not joking where I'm just like, I don't know. I'm a terrible mother. I just did blah, blah, blah. And I think it feels good to hear from people what a sacrifice you've made in the service of your kids. I think mm. um, I think it feels like, okay, and I'm, I must be doing something right. But I think it gets out of hand. And now here we are misunderstanding that not taking into account our own selves and our own needs is somehow a service to our kids. Mm. What do you think needs to change on that concept? Like we've got these martyr moms who are just sacrificing everything and believe that's the right way forward. How do we change that mindset and that thinking? I mean, I think the only way into changing mindset is to believe that it's better for your kids. I don't think we're doing anything for ourselves if we don't believe it's better for our kids. Um, mm, so true. And so I think here's a thought that that I wonder about. If you're the center of your child's universe, what does that feel like for them? Hmm. Like maybe it feels good, but maybe it also feels like, oh my God, without me doing this, this, and this, I don't know that my parent is going to be particularly satisfied, happy, fulfilled. Hmm. So hmm. I'm going to go off to college and what will they do? I remember the first time I left um, my kids for the weekend. No, I just got that wrong. They left me for the weekend. Um, <laughs> they went with their dad. And they were so worried I was going to be lonely. And I was like, I think I've done a disservice that I'm constantly around. Like, of course, you need to be around more than, you know, more often than not, but that I'm so around that they think that I I don't have any joy when they're not around. Mm. That just doesn't do them any favors. So I think the way in is to have us just think about if I'm making you the sun, moon, and stars, then how do you feel? And what burden might that put on the child? That's the only way I can think of because I don't think we're doing it for ourselves. This is so helpful. And it actually gets at something I struggle with tremendously in my own parenting, which is that um, I do a lot of speaking and my speaking engagements are booked six to eight months in advance. And the schedule for the school concerts comes out about four weeks in advance. Mm. And so it has routinely happened in my parenting that I have missed concerts. And 
there's no part of there's a part of me that I will never be able to get rid of. I feel terrible about this. Of course. I feel terrible about this and I hate this. And um as you're talking about the martyr mom thing, like it feels like the exact antithesis of what a great sacrificing everything parent would do. And yet, Elise, I have fought against self-flagellation in front of my daughters. And I've done it for a few reasons. One is I'm trying to raise feminists. And so part of what I feel like is this is my career and this is an unavoidable reality of my career. And when you have your career, you will run into unavoidable realities. And I don't want you to feel bad about them as a parent. Yeah. That I'm trying to set that up. But then the other thing, and this you're just making me feel better about something that has felt really hard, really hard in my parenting, is that um, we are very fortunate to be a mile from my in-laws. And we have also my husband's sister and brother and their families live in town. And so when I'm not at the concert, there are still several family members there. And so it does let me recede into the back a little bit in terms of like the universe of adults who care for my kid, which we're just lucky. And I know that. And so I will say like, I'm not going to be there, but dad and sometimes your sister and then your grandparents and aunt, you know, your aunt's coming over and then I'll watch it with you on video. But I, it has been um, an incredible tension to both try to be matter of fact about it, because I do feel that that is probably the most useful thing for my girls. Mm-hmm. But never, I wish, I, I don't feel matter of fact about it and I never totally. will. I, I feel the same way. I hear you. And also when I'm hearing you talk about it, I'm thinking they're going to know how to do a concert without you there. Now, of course, it's so awesome to have you there, but it's also great to know like, I just did that and I did it and I didn't have the need. I love it. Like I'm sure it's better when you're there, but what an what an empowering feeling to know like, I'm not constantly looking for your reaction to how mm-hmm. I just did. Wow, mm. that's powerful. I never thought of it that way, ever. Um, I'm so glad, Lisa, you shared that story and, Eliza, that you put it into that perspective because I never thought about that. Us being there also has an effect on their development. Meanwhile, believe me, I constantly feel guilty about it. And I'm like, <laughs> uh. um, but And I just recently – got stuck in traffic and missed my daughter's last volleyball game because I had a work thing and I I budgeted exactly how long it would take, but I did not account for California traffic, Los Angeles traffic. Mm. And mm. and she was so like <laughs> I mean, I felt much worse because she was so cool about it, but I also knew that that was a moment where I had to say like I can imagine that that was that hurt and that was disappointing mm-hmm. but i also know that in general like that i do not recommend although it was a mistake i move on whatever but i definitely was like oh why did i do this dar um but i do think i remember once when my kids were younger and they were swimming and they kept looking at me and wanting me to give feedback and i was like i need them to not need so much feedback from me. Mm. I really want them to just enjoy. They're just swimming. Mm. 
But it was yeah. like, and part of it was that it was siblings and they wanted my attention and all of that stuff. But there was that, I remember that moment because I was just like, what happens when I exit this space? Mm. Are we going to enjoy ourselves? Like, are, you yeah. know, am I actually going to make them have a, are they going to have a better time if I stop being an audience so much? And I think that's a little bit about what can help with this martyr mom stuff is let's not just be this audience member that is constantly there because yes, it's wonderful to behold these beautiful developing humans, but it's also wonderful to let them know that they can do this without that. Oh man. Okay. We got some questions from listeners. I, I mean, we could just, this could be a 14 hour podcast. <laughs> I um, and I do want to run some of these by you because they are just fantastic. We let them know that we had an expert like you coming so this gets to regulation questions and it's a big broad question but like when kids emotions seem out of whack what should we do <laughs> That's the question That's the question like their emotions are out it's of whack All on you Lisa tell us <laughs> Um it's funny to do this podcast with Lisa because I'm like you know <laughs> <laughs> Um but uh okay so regulation well one thing, so if I pull out one sliver of regulation, I would say co-regulation because I don't think we talk about it as much. And to go back to an earlier question I never answered, the way these ideas rose to the top for me is that they they are so important to the science of child development. It's not like I made up regulation. Um, so co-regulation, I think, is the biggest untapped key to regulation. So when kids' emotions are out of whack, really figuring out how to first make our nervous systems, put our nervous systems in a state that is not an alarm system going off and calling for the ambulance and the fire trucks and, you know, the, um, what else comes? The police. <laughs> And really getting us to a place of, I can figure out how to be there for my child because I'm not dysregulated myself. So I'm going to co-regulate and give them, like in a sense, they can borrow my nervous system because it's not available to them in full. Theirs is completely out of whack. And I love that because... I chose everything that I put in the book as things that we can control. I do not like things that parents are supposed to do that are not in their control. This does not feel helpful. And we are in control of regulating ourselves. So that is something that we can do for our kids. And that capacity to lend them our nervous system when theirs is out of whack is over time, it certainly doesn't they don't they don't just look at you and feel better but over time the message is this is not an emergency and lisa talks about this how they're looking to us to know if they if we meet them where they are in this emergent this what felt emergency that is scarier than if we meet them with compassion and understanding but without the message we did need to have all the alarm bells going off <laughs> I think that that is a bigger key than than anything else. What you do so well, and you know this is what I just admire and always 
you know, aspiring to do myself, is that you take these like very dense bodies of research. Like co-regulation is a giant and wildly important body of research. And you just bring it down to this. When your kid is having a five alarm fire, your job is to look as calm as you can, because that will help them realize that they can pull this. They can get themselves through this because you're not terrified. So it can't be that bad. Uh, just to, to just ground it in these, you know, tiny and multiple interactions that we have with our kids a week, you know, it, it's just so beautiful. When we, um, I was thinking, cause I, I have a crazy alarm system. When you set your alarm up, you can punch in like how long it gives you that warning beep. That's like a slow beep to let you know, like in 20 seconds, if you don't punch in the passcode that alarm is going off and there will be all of the, you know, the, the police will be here and et cetera. And I remember hearing that beep and just like feeling like that is that moment where I can regulate myself and then my kids can borrow some of it Mm -hmm. is that moment before an alarm goes off where there's a beep, there's a warning, there's something that happens, you know, and you can feel it. And, you know, I feel like my face getting hotter and I feel my Mm -hmm. fingers clenching. And I know that that is just the moment (laughs) before I'm going to lose my mind and my alarm's going off. Like I just have observed over, over time, we can all do that. Like, what are those things that you know are happening so that you can punch in the passcode so that the alarms don't go off? And I felt like that was a really easy way for me to understand co-regulation and regulation. And if my kids don't remember the passcode, you know, like sometimes they forget the passcode. It's hard. It's numbers. They're young. And I remember it. Like I can always remember it. That is in my capacity. That's I mean, it goes off sometimes the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) On account of us being humans, raising humans. We're humans. Yes, exactly. Oh, this is just so great. I I cannot thank you enough. We we got so many questions from, from everyone. I want to end on this one really quickly, if you don't mind. Someone asked about what do you do when you go from having lots of control as a parent to a lot less control? How do you deal with that? What should parents keep in mind? Because of age. Because of age, yeah. as they get older. As kids are growing up. Yeah. And get their opinions and their busy schedules. <laughs> um, I think that is where – look, it's so funny. I've gotten so deep into these five principles that I keep going back to them, even though that is not my intention to to constantly grab hold of them, but they do make it easier. But do I it. think that's- Do it. Actually, I think it's easier for you. It's also easier for everyone else. I mean, I think putting things into categories, giving them broad principles, go for it, Elisa. Do not hold back. <laughs> I really have made this book um, work for me here. But I think that reflection is very helpful when you imagine like what is going on with this natural evolving development of freedom and what does it mean for me and how much of it did I get and how much of it did I yearn for and how much of it meant I don't love my parents and how much of it meant Mm -hmm. I love my parents so much, but I'm just evolving and that that's part of our, you know, process of raising kids. And then still, no matter what, they still need, this principle doesn't get so much attention, but rules like It's just figuring out how much freedom is acceptable and and important because 
We know the science tells us autonomy-supportive parenting, if there was a gold standard, it would be autonomy-supportive parenting, right? And you need to match your child's developmental, both development age-wise and just development um, that is happening for their personal self and their temperament and think, let kids do for themselves what they can already do, which means let me have a look. What does this child, what can they do? What are they capable of? And then guide and encourage them to do things they can almost do. And you model for them the things they can't yet do. And I don't think that changes whether they're toddlers or teenagers. We have to figure out what can they already do that I can sit comfortably with. Mm-hmm. And and that is a hard question. But chances are if they can do it, then we can focus on our relationship and we can focus on sitting back and enjoying that they've got this and move on to, you know, like you're not going anywhere. You're just widening. What's the metaphor that you use, Lisa, with the pool? Oh, the swimming pool that, yeah, the teenagers are like swimmers. They they don't want to, they don't think about the word, the swimmer is the teenager, the water is the world, the parent, the family is the pool that holds it all together. You know, by the time they're adolescents, they they don't even want to think about those sides of the pool. They want to be in the water until they need us, and then suddenly, they come to us. And are right coming. until yeah. they need us. It's not a sea. It's not. There's there yeah. have to be. Yeah. They're, they're, they do come back to us, but yeah. it's just coming to terms with that freedom, making sure that that freedom isn't the extreme of like. I guess that's that's that. Go 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 forth. I mean, they're still they're still home. They're still with us. They still need a little bit. We just have to have that autonomy support in mind of let them do for themselves what they can already do and enjoy some of it. It's like, actually, I just had my daughter go take my other daughter to a class and I was like really nervous about it because she just got her license. But I also, once I got past that, was like, wait a minute. (laughs) This is fantastic. Mm. And it feels good for the kid too, right? So I mean, I good. think this is the thing. It feels good for them. It feels good for us. Aliza, here, let me just tell you what I, I, what you have done that I am so grateful for. Instead of telling people how to parent, because we talk about this all the time on this podcast, you can't tell people how to parent, right? There's too many variables that are too specific to any one family. What you have done is you have distilled research going back decades and across very many categories of research into ways to think about how to parent, like how to think about what it is we're here for, what it is we're trying to accomplish. And that is, in my world, that's the way to do it, right? Here's what we know. Here's what can inform your thinking. Um, And you can use this to refine, but never perfect this wonderful enterprise of having a family. Oh, that means so much to me. That means so much to me. Also, I love refined but never perfect. Um, It means so much to me, obviously, because it's you and I love you, Rena. (laughs) I feel like I know you because I listen to you all the time. Oh, this was such a joy, Aliza. We are so grateful. And can I just tell you, we, we're going to have to have her back on or do some other session because there's so much here in this book. Like, I, I want to talk to you about sleep as well. And there's a whole thing about friends and siblings. And uh, I just can't say, go get the book. Today is her 
publishing date and it's out today. It's called The Five Principles of Parenting. Dr. Lisa Pressman, so grateful you could make the time and help us kick off the new year in the right way. Thank you. All right. Go spread the word. Oh boy, Lisa, you were so right about Elisa. What a fabulous human being. She really is. She's brilliant and she's also very funny and very real. And um, I can tell you this book, you know, I read it with a researcher's eye. It's just thick with the science, but not in a way that is the least bit off-putting or wonky. It's just grounded in what we know as a field. And she translates it so beautifully. So what do you have for us for parenting to go? Well, I'm thinking about the five principles that she talks about in the book, relationship, reflection, regulation, rules, and repair. And I don't think it's an accident that she starts with relationship because, you know, when I think about what matters in family life, you know how we say in um, real estate, location, 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 you know, Mm -hmm. in family life, it's relationship, relationship, relationship. And what Eliza brings across both in this conversation we had in the book is how you navigate that relationship, how you reflect, how you work on regulation, what the rules you have, how you make repair happen in order to support those ongoing relationships. And so I don't think she would disagree, right? If you had to settle it down to one question, any challenge you have with your kid, you know, where does this, how's this going to play out in our relationship? And what principles can I draw on to help us both grow in the context of that relationship? I don't think before this podcast, I realized how important the relationship with your child is and nurturing that and focusing on that. I've always said you got to instill values, but that's a powerful message you just gave us. I think it's everything, Rena. I really do. And next week, it's a fascinating topic. I'm excited we're going to touch on boys and hyper fitness, everything you need to know about this topic. I see it in my own sort of gang. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. It's an important one, Rena, and one that's kind of snuck up on us. Mm. And next week, we're going to talk about a subject that, Lisa, you've been hearing so much about, weightlifting. Should you be concerned if your son is obsessed with weightlifting? I'll see you next week. I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Ask Lisa podcast so you get the episodes just as soon as they drop. And send us your questions to asklisa at drlisademore.com. And now a word from our lawyers. The advice provided on this podcast does not constitute or serve as a substitute for professional psychological treatment, therapy, or other types of professional advice or intervention. If you have concerns about your child's well-being, consult a physician or mental health professional. If you're looking for additional resources, check out Lisa's website at drlisademore.com. We'll see you next week.